Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by THR's chief TV critic, Dan Feinberg. Welcome, Dan. Thank you, Leslie. This week, we'll be taking a look back at the past year in television, including Dan's top five and worst five shows of 2018, the biggest cast departures and headlines of the year. Let's get into it. Number one. Leading off, we're going to get into the five biggest headlines of the year. In no particular order. But the top one has to be Les Moonves and the scandal and and fallout after the New Yorker's Ronan Farrow detailed numerous allegations of non-consensual sexual misconduct against the now former CBS CEO and one of the industry's biggest executives. Moonves was forced out in September and is now embroiled in an investigation as CBS weighs whether it has cause to fire him or deny him a $120 million severance package. Dan... It doesn't get much bigger than that. It, it really doesn't. And I and I hope that the listeners understand how big a deal it is for basically this to have been the downfall of perhaps the most powerful man in television. I, I think we could probably make arguments, you know, is Ted Sarandos of Netflix the most powerful man in television, whatever. But I think I think that at the end of the day, Les Moonves was probably the answer to the who's the most powerful man in TV conversation. And his downfall was a colossal story and a colossal distraction and a colossal revelation of institutional malfeasance of a horrible degree. And, you know, I definitely don't want to, to any degree, say that everyone at CBS was complicit in this, obviously, because clearly that's not the case. But if you subscribe to a fish rots from the head down theory of whatever, This was just an awful black eye for CBS, a network that as a rule would prefer people to just be concentrating on how it's always TV's most watched network and everyone watches CBS. And as Les Moonves would always say each year at the upfronts, network TV and all of that, still the best way to reach your audience and CBS still the best way to reach the most audience. So that would be what they would want us to concentrate on. But this was... This was colossal news. And where would you say they currently are in the process of sorting it out and moving forward. I mean, the investigation, as we record this, and granted, we're recording a little bit early because of the holidays, they're still knee-deep in it. I mean, I I would be surprised if there was any sort of resolution before Christmas, unless this is the type of story that's going to be your Christmas Eve at 6 p.m. holiday news dump. And even then, there are still all the questions of just, on a purely infrastructural level, who's taking over any of the hats that Les Moonves wore? Well, one of the big ones we know for sure, David Nevins from Showtime, is going to have a, a greater role in the larger company going forward. But I think all of those details are still being worked out. I mean, these are tremendous shoes to fill, and I don't think one person can step into them. So it's kind of remarkable, actually, that anything was able to knock the number two story on our list off, which could also be number one as well. And I think it's another one where the ripples we haven't even begun to see. So what do you have next on our list, Leslie? I mean, easily, it's the Disney-Fox deal. $71.3 billion of assets from Fox going to Disney, awaiting regulatory approval. But I mean, this is Disney would get Fox's TV studio, which is behind mega hits like This Is Us and Modern Family, as well as all of the deals with those top creators. Think Dan Fogelman, who was originally at ABC Studios and left to go to 20th. And at the same time, Disney's also getting cable networks like FX, National Geographic, and I mean, that's just the tip of the iceberg. What is your sense currently, uh, the most recent you've been told about what 
Fox, the current network, is going to become? What is it shifting into? Obviously, we do not have a, a concrete answer for that, but I know that they've started discussing at least what new Fox looks like. Right. So with the Disney deal, you're going to see a lot of executives, including Dana Walden and Peter Rice, moving from Fox to Disney with major roles. At the same time, Fox Broadcasting loses Dana Walden and Gary Newman, one of their longest tenured executives, two longtime partners who oversaw both the broadcast network and the studio, and AMC's Charlie Collier, who was behind big, massive hits like The Walking Dead and Critical Darlings like Better Call Saul, is now taking over the broadcast network. So what his vision is, is remains unclear, but one thing we know for sure is that Fox has been placing a big emphasis on sports. So the NFL, wrestling... Their goal this season, as we saw the first signs of the so-called new Fox, has been broad procedurals and multi-cameras. So stuff like this is why Tim Allen is back on Fox and that show is doing well and will probably be back again next season. But as for what what we can expect from Charlie, that remains to be determined. I just think it's so interesting how counterintuitive this is because the development narrative of really probably the past five years has been so consistently going to shows that the network's own shows from their sister studios and that's vertical integration vertical yeah. integration if you want to use a technical word i do <laughs> you know that's been the narrative that everyone's been repeating non-stop for years and then suddenly you have new fox which is all proud oh look we're going to be the network that doesn't have a vertically integrated studio well, as not if, yet anyway exactly as if that's going to somehow be an incentive and the question of how long that's likely to be an incentive for the answer could be what one development season yeah who knows i mean you know as they've been going through this development season i mean look the volume has not been the same as it has been in the past but they've made it a point that they want to buy from outside studios meaning the warner brothers of the world cbs for example sony which is another independent but at the same time they're still buying from 20th you know it, it's going to get messy before it gets better and what about the simpsons leslie that's a great question, too, because now Fox is going to have to pay Disney a licensing fee instead of owning one of the most lucrative properties in, in television. For our third biggest story of the year, let's get to something really scandalous and unappealing and kind of gross and another, another ongoing story. I think there's only two words that can follow that kind of setup, and it's Roseanne Barr. Easily the, one of the bigger stories of the year, ABC's decision to not only bring back the controversial comedian and her hit show, but the success of it and the and its immediate downfall. The Roseanne reboot last season was TV's number one comedy by a landslide. Mega hit like The Big Bang Theory. And one racist tweet later, you know, maybe an hour or two after Roseanne's tweet, ABC and entertainment president Channing Dungy canceled the show. That ABC would go on to, to cancel TV's number one show is a testament to the Disney brand and the kind of material and the kind of people that they're looking to work with. At the same time, this is a company that knew what they were getting in Roseanne. And still, at the same time, they found a way to bring back the show. Yeah, that's the key thing that really needs to be emphasized. As you say, one racist tweet. And yes, there was one racist tweet that was a bridge too far that was undeniable, as opposed to many years of xenophobic, reactionary tweeting that was a little bit more ambiguous and therefore apparently acceptable for the Disney brand. I've never fully endorsed the idea that Channing Dungy did something particularly courageous in deciding that she'd reached the end of her rope. To me, she could have reached the end of her rope at any point. And I mean, to me, it was the, <laughs> the old photos of Roseanne dressed up as Hitler with a plate of burnt cookies 
those images resurfaced like days before the premiere. They did. I've been I've been more tolerant of that just because they were part of a photo shoot for a Jewish affiliated magazine. And so, look, I, I totally understand why anyone would be disgusted with those. I just at least understand the context in which they arise, as opposed to the context of the tweet that did her in, where the only context is racism, regardless of what she's been saying. Yeah, no, definitely for a story that unfolded over multiple years. Do you feel like Connors, which premiered to good numbers, but has dwindled, does it feel like the kind of thing that has a life or are we too early in its lifespan to know if it's going to have value to ABC? I, I think it would be, I think it would damage their brand a little bit if they were to cancel it, considering everything that they had to go through to bring this show back, meaning they had to work out an, an arrangement where Roseanne Barr relinquished her, her rights to the show because the show is based on comedy from her life. And to, to work that out and to work out new deals with all the cast and to work out new deals with the producers and the crew and to bring everyone back, I think it's unfair to compare this show to what it was with Roseanne Barr attached because it, it's very clearly aiming for a specific audience in middle America and red state America, whereas the Connors lost that spokesperson. But at the same time, you know, you said in your review, this is actually a good show now. And I think that's true. I, I can see an argument in which one could say... If one were ABC, look, we canceled this show that we had renewed so abruptly and made it impossible for anyone associated with the show to find other work. The Connors was important for us to bring back so that we could finish the arc of the story and so that we can make sure that all of these people who were employed within the show did not need to suffer due to what Roseanne said and did. Having said that... We don't necessarily think that this show, which is not cheap to make, is a show that we need to have on the air, but we are open to bringing back the Connor family in five to ten years for another reboot. Like, I can imagine them coming up with a way of talking around this season as an altruistic gesture to the crew, which is a strange way for a network to do business. But that that is just how I can imagine them justifying the cancellation and saving some face is we did this to be generous to the grips which is fine. People should look out for the grips more often, I think. Yeah, but, you know, as someone who grew up watching the original Roseanne and who has watched every episode of the reboot, I'm, I'm a little bit behind on the Connors, but this is still a good quality family show with a specific audience. For our next topic, we can go as big or as little as you want because I've been saying for a couple of years now that at this point, Netflix is so big that you could employ someone whose entire job was to write up their daily announcements and their trailer premieres and their images. And that would be a job. That would take you nine hours a day. Uh, if you were a critic, easily the amount of stuff I have to watch for Netflix could be a full-time job to review I mean, it. It's, it feels like it's ha covering the, their announcements and their news announcements specifically is almost half of my job at this point. It's incredible. Yeah, so Netflix is, is this thing that is taking over the entire industry. So the question of where we want to start discussing the year in Netflix and the year in Netflix's encroachment over all of our lives. Let's see. How about Emmys? Huge shocker on Emmy morning when the nominations were announced. You saw Netflix top HBO by four. First time that anyone has snapped HBO's 18 years streak atop the leaderboard. Incredible. It was definitely surprising, though, of course, they had more volume than anyone else did. They submitted more stuff. And the other thing that people are barely talking about is that Netflix has still barely pushed into several categories. You know, Netflix releases original movies on a weekly basis. And I'm not even talking about something like Roma, 
where no one is really going to suggest they submit it for Emmy consideration. I'm talking about true Emmy contenders like All the Boys I've Loved Before and You're Not Laughing at This. You're supposed to be laughing when I suggest that All the Boys I've Loved Before is going to be an Emmy contender. But no, Netflix has a lot of original movies, some of which did not get theatrical releases because Netflix doesn't care. And the minute at which Netflix starts pushing some of those, suddenly A, the Emmy original movie category becomes a much more vital thing but b that's another 20 or 30 emmy nominations for like there's no limit to the amount of content that netflix could push for emmy consideration they might be opening their for your consideration space right now in hollywood they're they're getting out way ahead of the emmys so yeah netflix is everywhere how else is that manifesting itself yeah and i mean before we move on to what else netflix has been doing this year i think it's important to note that when all was said and done, Netflix and HBO ultimately tied. So they don't have that crown. They have part. They have a little asterisk next to their to their pseudo win there with you know sharing it with HBO. And HBO's streak remains intact. But I think you know just as as Netflix has a ridiculous amount of volume on tap for 2019, HBO is no slouch with some of the stuff that they've got coming up. So what else has Netflix been doing with their money of note? Well, part of that eight billion that they continue to spend every year on on content is a massive investment in the overall deal space. And what that means is bringing top creators. They start, look, Netflix started this process with Shonda Rhimes last year, a $100 million deal for the Grey's Anatomy and Scandal creator to create new content to stream exclusively on Netflix. So what that means is that someone at Netflix or or the, the logarithm has said, Grey's Anatomy is one of our bigger performing shows. So is Scandal. So we want to bring the creator to do more originals for those viewers. And, they're doing the same thing. They've invested $300 million with Ryan Murphy. He's creating multiple new shows for Netflix exclusively. That was a big hit. They pounced on Fox, realizing that this was a company that was about to see its studio move to Disney. They did the same thing with blackish creator Kenya Barris, who, after a string of misfires for ABC, you know, had three years left on his deal and negotiated an early exit en route to a high eight-figure deal with Netflix. And there's more, you know, you know, Sharp Objects creator Marty Noxon, Narcos showrunner Eric Newman, Spartacus boss Stephen S. Tonight. I mean, a lot of top creators are starting to kind of take a step back and look at their overall deals, be they with ABC, Fox, Warner Brothers, etc., and figure out what are they worth. So from behind the scenes stuff and TV shows that haven't aired yet and might not air until 2019, I think we are going to move on to our next topic for this podcast. Number two. Yes, it's all the biggest cast departures. Multiple series lost their number ones. We're talking about AMC's The Walking Dead, which kind of sort of said farewell to Andrew Lincoln. We've talked about Roseanne. There's Kevin Spacey being killed off of House of Cards and what happened, obviously, behind the scenes there. Danny Masterson being fired on off of Netflix's The Ranch. And perhaps one of my favorite stories of the year, it's the, the crazy case of, of Clayne Crawford and who was fired from Fox's Lethal Weapon after multiple outbursts on the set and clashes with Damon Wayans Sr. Dan, I mean, there was like 30, 30 plus on our list uh, that published a few weeks ago here. Which of these uh, big departures really stands out to you? Well, I think it's interesting sort of the different ways in which these things are happening. Like on Andrew Lincoln, you can kind of see the framework in which the top of the call sheet guy who's been the lead for seven, eight years is simply ready to do other things or in his case, spend more time with his family or whatever he wants. But in this case, it's really continue playing this character, but in four made for AMC TV movies. 
Yeah, the, the, the exact way in which he left, which was to leave the door wide open and him standing in the background waving, going, okay, I'll be back, but but you should still be really emotional about my departing, both of these things at once. But I can still sort of see what the framework is for that, and, and I understand what the precedent is. And when you have something like Roseanne, well, you know, we, we know that why that happened, and we know why Kevin Spacey fell out of House of Cards, so to speak. And with that, Probably in both of those two cases, the more interesting thing is the fact that the show's continued at all. I, I think that House of Cards could have just ended. It was already running on fumes, and they could have said, we're done. But I think the reality is that on that show, probably it was going to become Robin Wright's show in its final season anyway, with Kevin Spacey as kind of an annoying interloper talking to the camera off to the side. At least we didn't have to deal with that. So I think House of Cards got better without Kevin Spacey. I think Roseanne, I think the Connors survived solidly without Roseanne. Honestly, the strangest of any of these to me is the Clint Crawford on Lethal Weapon situation. There are like eight different levels on which that makes no sense to me. The way in which the story broke with people releasing competing videos from the set and competing versions of what happened and, and whether or not Clint Crawford was putting Damon Wayans Sr.'s life in jeopardy and all of that. That was strange. I mean, my favorite part of that, of the Lethal Weapon story is still the bizarre podcast that Clayne Crawford did in which he claimed he was blackmailed and set up to fail on Lethal Weapon, which, I mean, you're signing on for a reboot of a big procedural at Fox. You know what the, what the gig is. I mean, I don't understand how anyone is set up to fail. I mean, especially when a broadcast show is giving an actor the chance to direct on a show that he's been on for, for a year. Like, he knows how that show works, and he knows the personalities involved. I don't understand how he could claim that he was blackmailed or set up to fail. It's 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 truly one of the most bizarre interviews that, I, that I've heard all year. Well, that was strange, but then the entire thing about how they still were determined to renew the show, which is not a wildly successful show for anyone. It's a, it's a mid-range hit by today's standards is what it is and but it's a broad procedural on a network that was about to pivot in and lean hard into the procedural space and for warner brothers the studio behind it it's an off-network sale and in this era of vertical integration and where ownership means everything that's huge for warner brothers and it's still a brand and it still lets warner brothers keep the lethal weapon brand but so okay so all of that happened and they brought the show back with sean william scott and i think they probably introduced sean william scott as as well as such a thing could have been done. And then promptly, Damon Wayans Sr. decided that he was leaving the show. So, like, how much is it worth for Warner Brothers and Fox to keep alive this already barely resuscitated property? It is a, a strange story, and that it has kept going kind of amuses me a little bit, even if I've stopped watching Lethal Weapon. And not necessarily because of the absence of Clayne Crawford, though Clayne Crawford was my favorite part of the show, because I'm a large fan of Rectify, and also he was really good. And honestly, I thought he and Damon Wayans Sr. had a, a reasonable amount of chemistry. But really and truly, there's simply too much stuff on television, and this just fell victim to being a mediocre to very slightly above average show in a landscape where ain't nobody got time for that. Ain't nobody got time for that. Yeah. At the same time, there were a bunch of other big cast departures this year. Dan, I mean, TJ Miller from Silicon Valley, 
Holly Perrette from NCIS, um, Sarah Drew, Jessica Capshaw from Grey's Anatomy. As, as a fan of that show, that, that kind of hit right in the heart. The bizarre case of Ruth Wilson and the affair, where we still have no idea what led to her departure, but she asked to be removed from the show. At least to the degree to which any human being watches the affair and anybody on Earth talks about the affair, it seemed as if people were actually surprised by that. And I can't think of, of all the departures in the year, how many of them were actually genuinely surprising? Very, very few. Yeah, so, um, so kudos at least, whatever the reason was, <laughs> which I assume we'll find out someday because... Ruth Wilson has multiple upcoming new TV shows. She'll be out there talking about a lot, a lot of press of... opportunities. Exactly. Several people will have several opportunities to ask her the, so why'd you leave the affair question in five or six different variations. And eventually, maybe she'll say. The other death that really surprised me a lot is Kim Dickens on Fear the Walking Dead. And this was the number one on the call sheet. And it happened a few episodes after the male lead of the show was killed off too, Cliff Curtis. And AMC took some heat for that. What happened? Who watches Fear the Walking Dead, Leslie? Honestly, I do not. I, I only know that there was some unrest. Kim Dickens is a great actress who has people who love her from Treme and Deadwood and many of her credits. And at least for a couple weeks when I was still watching Fear the Walking Dead, she was the only thing keeping me watching. So her absence is definitely going to keep me from going back to it. Well, that feels like a good moment to pivot to our next topic. Dan, get ready. It's the worst shows of the year. Number three. It's funny because back in the day, it used to be possible to watch shows just for the purpose of this list. Like I would check in, for example, on two or three episodes of Criminal Minds every season, usually when they had a funny stunt guest star, just to make sure that Criminal Minds was still one of the worst shows on TV. And I am reasonably confident that if I were to check in now, I would discover that Criminal Minds is still one of the worst shows on TV. But I don't know because I don't have time to watch episodes of Criminal Minds just for the purpose of taunting myself. So God bless. And there are, in fact, a lot of network shows that I just haven't persisted with. So for this, we're going to do bottom five shows of the year. But I'm cheating like hell. I mean, there's a lot that you haven't seen. I mean, there's more than 500 scripted shows that have aired in, in 2018. I mean, it's impossible, A, that everything is good, and, and B, that everything was as entertaining as the lethal weapon behind-the-scenes drama. Very little is. Uh, I think probably FX's feud, Demon versus Klain, in five or ten years will be a much better show than anything the broadcast networks put on in the fall, which is why, and these are not in any particular order, the first of my bottom five shows of the year is absolutely everything the broadcast networks put on in the fall. Basically, we had a new fall in which I am watching only one network drama still. That would be the CW's All-American, which I would describe as okay. But I have quit on every other broadcast network drama and most of the broadcast network comedies. I still watch Single Parents because I believe it has potential. I believe that the Brad Garrett, Leighton Meester version of that show would be a good show. Unfortunately, it's not the show. And I still watch The Kids Are All Right because it reminds me of other ABC shows that are better. But the broadcast fall was an embarrassment, and it really should cause everyone working behind the scenes at a broadcast network to re-examine what it is that they're bothering for. Because... None of them are breakout hits. It, you know, if there were five shows that were drawing 10 to 15 million viewers a week, I would say, okay, clearly they're right, I'm wrong. Whatever. Their, their job is to reach the people. I'm a critic. 
screw me. But they're yeah, not. They're not making shows. Broadcast networks are not making shows for critics. They're not, but obviously they're only making the shows for a small number of people. They're not making shows that are hitting broad swaths of humanity and they're doing something wrong. And so when we're currently in the middle of an award season, the top 10 season, and when it comes to top 10s from critics, basically you're looking at The Good Place as the broadcast show that some people have in, as a token in their top 10. And that's about it. You look at, I guess some people still like This Is Us, whatever. You look at awards show recognition and Good Place gets a couple nominations here and there. This Is Us gets a couple, whatever. So... I am saying that the broadcast fall was one of the worst shows of, of the year as a unit. That way I can just move on to, to something else. The next thing I'm going to move on to is probably my disappointment of the year, which is the second season of Ozark on Netflix. And this is an awards player. I am utterly baffled by that. And the Screen Actors Guild giving four nominations to it, of which I totally respect that they gave one to Julia Garner, whose part of the story is the only part of that show that I like. The second season, every episode was long without enough story to compensate for any of it. So you have episodes running 62, 63, 67 minutes, none justifiably. Every episode is moodily underlit because someone told someone that shooting in darkness reflects moral murkiness or something. You can shoot in darkness and not have everything just look underexposed. And no one on Ozark has figured that out. There are ways to shoot in darkness that are evocative as opposed to just dark. So is it just the way that it's shot or was it part of a larger story that that really sagged in season two? I just think think what the story was doing this season was really boring. And I, I think that Jason Bateman's performance has become monotonous. I I think that they are wasting Laura Linney in a way that verges on criminal. I I think that Julia Garner is easily the most interesting part of the show, and the show only remembers that she's interesting five minutes an episode. It's it's a show that really frustrates me. And if no one ever popped up in my Twitter feed to tell me that the show was awesome, I probably would only care a little bit. But there are people who love the show, and that that perplexes me. It's just a bad show. Okay, so we've got... The Broadcast Network's Fall, Freshman Class, Ozark. What else you got? Moving along, and let's stick with uh, Netflix. Because here's the thing about Netflix, is they send out a lot of episodes. And so I feel totally comfortable in saying I have a good sense of what the shows are. Whereas, in the case of Broadcast Network, if I've only seen one episode or two episodes of The CW's The Outpost, which aired during the summer and is perhaps the most amateurish thing to ever air on broadcast television, I don't know that I necessarily want to pick on it. The Outpost is was completely and totally amateur hour, and the CW gave it a full season and I think renewed it, didn't they? Uh, Did I invent that? I think you might have invented it. Oh, I hope I invented it, because because it's ridiculous. I stand corrected. The CW did indeed renew. I really thought I remembered, because it perplexed me. But also, this you know, in in the CW's defense, this is a show that's an acquired content. They didn't produce it in-house. It's not from a studio. I think, I believe it's like a Canadian import, and it airs in the summer, so it's low-cost, Cheap to produce, low expectations. Yeah, no, it is no. It, there is no risk to the CW other than the fact that for an hour a week they were airing something that looked like it was probably cost 50 bucks an episode. So there's that risk. Anyway, though, we're talking about 13 Reasons Why. Second season, which never needed to be made, messed up the narrative of the first season in horrible ways, introduced 15 
bad new characters and bad new supporting plots. The Trial, which was the centerpiece of the second season of 13 Reasons Why, could be the worst TV show of the past year all on its own. It was just dreadful. Made very little use of Katherine Langford, who was really the show's number one resource, and now she's off doing better things. Bless and, her. And she's got a Frank Miller show that she's doing for Netflix after she confirmed that she has indeed done playing Free. Hannah on Free. 13 Reasons Why. I'm sure she skipped out of that meeting with a happy gait and twirling, I don't know, whatever people twirl in happiness. I uh, mean, she probably was twirling the, the script for Love, Simon, which was she was actually terrific in, which if we can talk about movies for a split second here. I haven't seen it, but I hadn't actually even realized she was in that. See, there you gave me a reason, because I think she's really talented. I thought she was great in the first season. It, this is just, though, an example of a show that didn't need to be renewed for a second season had no story for a second season. And Netflix is doing this fairly relentlessly. There didn't need to be a second season of American Vandal. It happened that the second season of American Vandal was good, and then... Cancelled. So what are we supposed to make of that? I don't know. And yet, 13 Reasons Why? Renewed for a third season. Baffling. There is no question that was left outstanding at the end of the second season. And... The season ended with an episode which, under other circumstances, with sort of an inference of a potential school shooting, probably would have been uh, pulled from airing rotation. But because Netflix really and truly doesn't care, they kept it on the air and kept with plans for that show, even as there were shootings happening in public. I mean, in their defense, they did cancel the 13 Reasons Why season two premiere event in light of a, a school shooting that happened the same, I think it, it was either the same day or the day prior. So to defend Netflix here a little bit, I think it was a little hard to pump the brakes on 13 episodes, but at least they can cancel an event that was too soon. They can, and that leads me to the next of my worst shows of the year, a show that ha was relentlessly pushed back, delayed, ignored, pushed to foreign countries. Ooh, 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 let me guess, let me guess. It's Paramount Network's Heather's Reboot. Yep. My feeling on the Paramount Network's Heather's reboot is if you have a show that has to keep being postponed because it's culturally insensitive and you are not confident enough in the quality of your show to stand by it and to actually air it in any circumstance, you shouldn't have made that show in the first place. Heather's was a tone-deaf, stupid, badly made take on a movie that nobody required being updated. It was a satire that wasn't funny. It was a sociological satire with no particular perspective on today's society that was made more and more clear with each time it had to be delayed amidst shootings because Paramount Network kept feeling like it was insensitive or whatever. If the show had been perceptive in any way, they would have been able to go, okay, look, Here's what the show's talking about. That's what the show is about. Learn from the show. Instead, Paramount Network just kept pulling it because they didn't want to stand behind the quality of the show, which was negligible. And they did actually air it. They, and they did it in a binge model over Halloween. And they edited out a number, at least two huge scenes that viewers could have taken issue with, including how this, the show ended. Which is, if you've seen the movie, and I have and I love the movie... Viewers know exactly what happens. But this was something that they had really high hopes for. And Viacom tried to sell it internationally, got a couple of takers in, in you know, different countries. But they couldn't find a stateside buyer that, you know, from everything that I, I was told, Netflix passed, Freeform passed, USA Network passed. So it, it got a, a burn off. Yeah. 
So we've got four, four. Of, your, of your worst shows of the year. And Damn. really and truly, I probably should have saved Heathers for last, except it transitioned much too well out of 13 Reasons Why. That was bad planning on my part, because I'm just going to end with Genius Picasso on, on National Geographic, because I, I know that some Nat Geo publicists will be listening and wanting me to insult Genius Picasso, because it, it pretty much took everything that, that tentatively worked about the Einstein season and turned it on its cliched artist ear and it's rather sad to see all of the awards that at this time of year Antonio Banderas is being nominated for for a, a fundamentally hammy and mediocre performance as as a brilliant artist and last I heard Nat Geo was still waffling between potential subjects for the next season they initially said Mary Shelley because they wanted to acknowledge that women could be geniuses too which was which probably which is one of the big criticisms on the franchise oh it's one of it's my primary criticism is that if you're doing a franchise like this you don't start off with two European white men unless you simply want to make people believe that that's what your definition of genius is there were news reports that they were contemplating an Aretha Franklin season had you heard anything about that um I have I have not heard anything about that but I mean look they need to do something different and I think I think it might be a little bit too soon to do Aretha Franklin but I'm also I don't also work for National Geographic so they just had a really really strong franchise building with Einstein which was not perfect but which had interesting things about it and yeah, now now I don't know that they really do. So yes, that would be that would be not necessarily my bottom five per se, but it would be five of my bottom shows of 2018. We're gonna get back into the industry weeds a little bit and talk about. We've talked about the cast departures a lot, but let's talk about the big shakeups at, at Viacom and the broadcast networks and get into some of the bigger executive departures of the year. Number four. Three of the big four broadcast networks saw major changes. Bob Greenblatt left NBC after seven years. Um, Dana Walden and Peter Rice are leaving Fox to join Disney as Ben Sherwood is poised to leave once the, that deal closes. With Walden's move to Disney, her former partner Gary Newman is also leaving Fox with Charlie Collier, who we've mentioned, taking over what's left of New Fox. And then over at ABC, Channing Dungey, who ran ABC for the past two years, stepped down as entertainment president rather than having to report to Walden, her former competitor, and Freeform's Carrie Burke has now taken over at ABC. And then over at Viacom, I mean, the, the changes there, it's like, I feel like I have a, a bachelor's degree in, in covering Viacom at this point. Nickelodeon, BET, and Paramount Network each lost executives who have been with the media conglomerate for more than two decades apiece. As Bob Backish, the Viacom CEO, shifts the strategy there from focusing on five key brands to four key brands. And Kent Alterman was promoted as part of that. I mean, it's getting increasingly hard to keep up with what's going on in Viacom. So we covered right at the top of the show that clearly Les Moonves's firing was the the biggest of the TV-related executive shifts. What would you put as second out of out of this group here? Everything at Fox and Disney. I mean, we've only just begun to see the game of musical chairs that's, that's going to happen in the executive suites over there. There's going to be a lot of layoffs once that deal closes because there's so much redundancy. And I think it'll, it'll be interesting to see what, what Dana Walden does with Disney. And I mean, that, that's not just ABC and with Carrie Burke running that too. I like her a lot, but also Freeform and overseeing both studios. You know, you've got Patrick Moran running ABC Studios. I mean, they've, they've had a rough year after losing Shonda and Kenya Barris. But, you know, Dana could, could very well infuse that network with a, with a lot of different things. And I think Carrie brings a, a different perspective to things too. Now, without 
knowing anything about what the new people in these jobs are actually going to do, whose pedigree past makes you most interested in what they're going to do in their new gigs? I mean, I think Dana Walden overseeing all the TV assets at Disney is super interesting. And I think Peter Rice above her, it, it, that's a killer combo. I mean, what they were able to do with, with Fox and with the studio, it's impressive. But I think, you know, with that, with the access to, to the libraries that, that Dana's going to have, I'm very excited to see. I mean, look, if she is, she rebooted 24 and the X-Files, and I think there's a lot of other great Disney IP that they could that they could mine if they wanted to. I think Carrie Burke has an interesting track record. I mean, look, she was in the room when Friends was pitched. She's got great taste. I mean, look what, you know, she's done at Freeform is, you know, she's developed some some great hits for them including The Bold Type, and it has kind of revived that network after Pretty Little Liars ended and and made it a place for for young, you know, for young viewers to really tune into content that speaks to them. I think that's an interesting pairing. What's next on our list for topics? You've made it through the biggest headlines of the year. We've talked about all the big cast departures this year, Dan's worst shows of the year, some major executive departures, and now we're going to wrap up our year in review with Dan's best shows of the year. Number five. What are your highlights of this year? My highlights, and these actually, unlike my worst shows of the year, are actually in order because if you go to The Hollywood Reporter now, you can see my list of 10 with blurbs and all sorts of stuff so the information is out there and i've already evaluated them and i stand by my words so the number five show of the year um and my top 10 had three netflix shows this ended up being the highest of them and amusingly when i suggested to netflix people that i had three netflix shows in my top 10 not a single one was able to guess a single one of the shows that i had in my top 10 which shows a gap between kind of perception and my own taste, I suppose. But The End of the uh, Bleeping World was my fifth favorite show of the year. And I loved it in large part, and you, sadly, listeners, will be unable to experience it in this way, because of the sense of discovery of it. Netflix only announced it a week before they were premiering it, basically. They sent out a full slate of episodes to critics. I sat down thinking, I'm going to watch one episode, and... Eight episodes later, which was only under four hours, I was done with the season. And, and this is a, a show that Netflix bought as an import. And it's just a it's a weird romance about a uh, potential budding serial killer and the antisocial girl who who maybe can bring him love, maybe can steer him down a positive path, or maybe not. It is the kind of show where you can watch for five to ten minutes and you are either going to be instantly hooked and watch the rest of it, or you're going to cringe and say, I can't watch eight episodes of these people. To my mind, the performances by uh, Alex Lothar and Jessica Barden are, are just wonderful. They make these awful people entirely relatable and empathetic. The show is extremely funny. The show is nicely romantic. The show is extraordinarily violent. It's very dark. And really and truly, if it hits your wavelength you will love it and if it doesn't you'll know you can turn it off within 15 minutes and i i consider that to be a wonderful thing in this day and age you will not waste any more time on the end of the bleeping world than you know you want to and it's a show that's coming back for season two which you as far as i understand have mixed feelings about. oh i have decidedly negative feelings about it uh <laughs> let, let's be real the first season it reaches an ending point I understand people, you know, say, oh, there are still questions at the end. And that's fine. There are. Sometimes stories are allowed to end with questions. And to me, this was a wonderfully contained eight-episode season that required no additional embellishment and runs 
distinct risk of spoiling the brand if they attempt to explain these characters more, if they attempt to justify their behavior more, if they attempt to psychoanalyze these characters more. No, this is the right length for this series. Don't mess with it. But I look forward to watching season two of uh, The End of the Bleeping World on Netflix. So what's number four? Number four on my list, this, this will be a shock to anyone who knows any television critics or follows any television critics on uh, Twitter, uh, that would be FX's The Americans. Uh, it's a good show. If you haven't heard of The Americans, allow me to tell you it's about two Russian spies working in America undercover in the 1980s. And it has been one of TV's best shows for the past five years, and the sixth season was as good a, and satisfying a last season of a show in recent years. We've, we've had some really good shows tying themselves up in the past couple of years. Last year we had... The Leftovers and Halt and Catch Fire, which both did a wonderful job of ending their runs, and the Americans also did. It, it I think a lot of people expected this, the last season to have more bloodshed. I think that ultimately Joe Weisberg and Joel Fields felt like they wanted it to be more about moral compromises that people made and uh, moral ramifications and effects of, of what these main characters did. And... The last season is just beautiful and builds beautifully. And Carrie Russell and Matthew Reese, the fact that they end with one combined Emmy between them is is sad. At least Matthew Reese got his Emmy this past year. But this is a show that was never really an awards favorite. It was always a critical darling. And I think that down the road, people are going to find this show on Netflix and elsewhere. And they're going to be like, oh... Why did we not watch this? This is just a really great character-driven spy drama. Why? What were we so afraid of? People should just catch up on The Americans. <laughs> Which takes us to your third best show of the year. Which is another show that, like The End of the Bleeping World, you will know if it's for you fairly early on. My number three show of the year was HBO's Succession. And if you go back and you look at the initial reviews, they were positive but not rapturous. And then over the course of a summer... It felt like Buzz just built week after week after week, which doesn't happen all that yeah, frequently. HBO put a lot of its marketing behind sharp objects with, I mean, Amy Adams. I mean, you kind of, it's, it feels like a no-brainer, but the long-term hit wound up being Succession. I think that Sharp Objects ultimately has made its share of top 10 lists and will almost certainly be a bigger awards player. So, I, But that's also a limited, We at least we know for now, a, a one-off, whereas Succession is a show that's definitely coming back in 2019. And could go on for quite a long time and find itself on year-end lists for the next couple of years. It could. And I think that more people will be ready for it in its second season. Because the thing about the show, you might have heard people say, oh, it gets good in episode four and five. I, I don't think that's true. I think that it is a show where you don't go in being telegraphed what you're supposed to think about this awful family of media magnates. And so a lot of people went in and they're like, oh, it's another show about the perils of being wealthy and white in America. And the Murdochs. And the Murdochs, exactly. Because Jesse Armstrong, who created it, had even had a blacklist Murdoch family script, which he insists has nothing to do with this. And this family is not the Murdochs, even if they're a lot like the Murdochs in certain obvious ways. But I, th I think people went in not knowing what to expect. And it's a strange tonal mix. It is, to me, it's a comedy. And... HBO has submitted it as a drama, and my my partner in crime, Tim Goodman, and I have had fights. He's sure it's a drama. I'm sure it's a comedy. It definitely ended like a drama, 
Uh, but I think there's a lot that you have to get up to speed with. And I don't think that's the show's fault. I think that's it's something challenging that it's trying to do. And that's a good thing. I think you can latch on early to the performances by Brian Cox and Jeremy Strong and uh, Kieran Culkin and Sarah Snook and especially Matthew McFadden. Latch on to those and let the show work its way into your bones. But some people, it just won't be their thing. These are awful people. And they're doing, and they're treating each other awfully, and I can't deny that. But to me, what it did was so challenging and so satisfying that I had no problems putting it number three on my list. Yeah, I mean, and you know, to borrow one of your phrases here, it's awfully entertaining. Which takes us to your second number two show of the year. Uh, another shocker. You you might know that uh, Don Glover does a uh, a TV show for FX. You might have mentioned. I think it's named after, what's it? And named after a small city in Georgia, um, Atlanta. <laughs> and the second season, Robin's season, had a lot to live up to coming off of a first season that was wildly acclaimed and award-winning. And the second season is in many ways a more challenging and possibly better season. It is, whether it's a more entertaining season is something that is open to debate, but the number of things that Donald Glover and his gang are doing in the second season of Atlanta got to single out uh, Hiro Murai, the director of multiple episodes, who is sort of the visual mastermind of, of what is a wonderfully visual single cam sort of comedy series. Uh, what they're all doing, they're trying so many different things. One of the structural things this season, because so many of these people on this show were so busy, is that the episodes this season focus on single characters. And so if you look at the cast, you know, Brian Tyree's been in everything this winter. Uh, Lakeith Stanfield had a huge hit with Sorry to Bother You. Uh, Zazie Beetz was in Deadpool 2, etc. So there's a lot of people who have been very, very busy, and so the show had to work around a lot of schedules. And so you have episodes that focus simply on Paperboy wandering through the woods, an episode called The Woods, which was remarkable. You had an episode that was all about Lakeith Stanfield's character meeting a mysterious Michael Jackson-like figure who, who maybe was played by Donald Glover, maybe not, who knows? He was credited as himself in Teddy Perkins, which was the year's best episode of television by, I don't want to say a wide margin, there was a lot of great TV this year. It just happens that that was a marvelous episode. And just week to week, the fun of Atlanta was not what's going to happen to these characters, what adventures are they going to go on, so much as what is the show going to be next week. And I, I love that journey, and I'm so glad that Donald Glover, who is an extremely busy and powerful man, has been willing to give FX another season of this. And when it happens, it happens. But once again, I will look forward to seeing what Atlanta decides it wants to be. I mean, that's incredible praise, and that's only your number two show of the year. So what's number one, Dan? Number one show of the year, and most people have not watched this show, so you should seek it out. It is Stars' America to Me. And yes, that is my number one show of the year coming from Stars, the network that we used to make fun of because all of their shows were driven by random nudity. Now, however, Stars is a network that has... Vida, which is an interesting little show. Uh, second season will have an all Latinx women uh, directing roster. That's that's a fun thing that they're doing. They have Outlander, which has a huge audience that loves it and some acclaim. 
And yes, American to Me comes from Steve James, and it is a 10-part documentary series about a year in the life of a Chicago public school that straddles the line between neighborhoods. Basically, it's a largely affluent community, but it's right on the line, and so some of the students are not as affluent as others, and it's a show about public education and who is served by education in America in this day and age, who's getting left behind, why they're getting left behind, how we teach, how our students are growing up faster and what they're learning. Basically, any topic you would ever want to discuss with your child, if you had children of that age, is discussed in America to me. And really, any topic you'd want to discuss about America in 2018. Uh, the Most of the best shows on TV this year were high-class hamburgers or good steaks. This is a 20-year-aged piece of, of meat that is full of deep flavors and complexity, and yet it's also a high school story in which you get to experience young love, tragic failures. There are at least two different underdog sports narratives woven through it. It's really anything you could possibly want in a TV show, but it's also a documentary series. And to me, America to Me on Stars was the year's best program. Wow. That's a very su surprising pick. I try. Can you rattle off a couple of shows that almost made the top five? Well, I can uh, tell you some of the other shows that were in the second half of my top five. I can tell you that it includes, and this is to mention again, that Netflix people did not guess that Dear White People was going to be in my top ten. The second season of that show was a leap from the first season, which was already very good. Big Mouth, which to me could be paired with BoJack Horseman as sort of the, the pinnacle of adult animation these days. Second season of Big Mouth was fantastic. HBO's My Brilliant Friend, wonderful show, and, and expands what networks feel like they can do with television these days. It's an entirely Italian language series based on the Elena Ferranti novels. Great to see. And then what else? A little show called Better Call Saul. I like to talk about it periodically. There's a lot of good TV. And if you stick around on uh, THR, you will see that I'm going to expand my list to, to 20 in the, in the week to come. And I could probably go to 30 or 40 and still not include your favorite show. And that doesn't mean I hate your favorite show. It just means there's a lot of good stuff on TV. Yeah. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm exhausted from just the sheer volume of shows that you've had to watch. And you watch multiple <laughs> episodes when these screeners are sent out. And at the same time, I've had to write about all these shows being picked up or and cast and canceled and renewed. It's been a busy year, to say the least. Well, I assume that 2019 will be light on TV, right, Leslie? Uh, no, not at all. Well, this feels like a good note to end things on. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your various podcast platforms. Dan and I will be back in 2019 with a look at some of the year's most anticipated new shows, industry narratives to monitor, and more. And until then, happy holidays and have a joyous new year. Happy New Year, listeners. 